Hello and welcome to the Walk Around Podcast, powered by JMA Group. If you are in the automotive business, you have found the place to be. I am one of your hosts, Mark Spoto, joined as always by Elliot Shore. Heyo! <laughs> and Elliot, this is our second episode in the new studio, which is exciting. Yes, we've got props. We've, we've added headphones. Headphones. We've we're got real legit props, here. fake props. It's uh, and we're in between a fern. We are. No, no, no. Well, the, the fern, fern is, is between, between us. us. Yeah, close. Yeah. So, so for all of you, uh, we're obviously plugging the fact that you can watch us on YouTube, Spotify, or any of your streaming any, services. Any that, of your platforms that have video. Yes, you can see us in person. It would, it's an amazing experience. Oh boy. So today on the show, we've got Dave O'Brien, who is the co-founder and CEO of Quantum5. They are a company that provides a social advocacy learning platform to provide training on people skills and behavioral strategies in a digital environment. Dave has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the automotive world, in particular, the dealer business. He's been in sales. He's been in service. He grew up in the business, his dad was a dealer, and he has helped create a platform that really speaks to the importance of learning and training for your people. Right. It's a simple concept, but he's he's kind of nailed uh, how it should work. Yeah, you know, it's pretty amazing when you think about how games have taken over our life in everyday world on your phone and how much money gaming companies make um, with silly little games and now taking that same learning and applying it to how we can teach people better. Yes. Um, and using data, using the dealership's own data, which is fascinating, to drive customized learning at an individual level. It was really a fantastic conversation. It was. We talk training, learning. We talk movies. Training montages. Training montages. And once again, we get the facts wrong on movies. Yeah, we continue to go down that path it's in a very poor form. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's hear from Dave and let's take a walk around with Dave O'Brien. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining us on the walk around. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for making time for us. No, absolutely honored to be here with you guys and uh, looking forward to getting some time with you. So, Elliot, this is a topic that I think you know, we've covered a little bit on the walk around, but yeah. probably not enough. Never. And I'm I'm so thrilled that Dave is here to talk about training and retaining uh, your employees as a business owner. Yeah. You know, when I saw Dave's name um, and company on on our uh, docket here for uh, interview, I was really excited about it. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, Dave, you have such a varied background and, you know, and, and some of the stuff you're working on now, you know, just seems so relevant to the market and uh, really where, you know, leveraging data to to give better training and is, it just sounds very appropriate these days. But, um, but before we get into that, you know, I, I think, you know, Dave, you've had like a, a renaissance of a career in, in this short span. Why don't you give our audience uh, just a brief background on, on how you grew up in the car business and, and where you're at today? As, as long as renaissance doesn't mean I'm an old guy, right? I, oh, no, <laughs> no, that's a compliment. Experience, <laughs> no. experience. Um, hey, look, I mean, I, I got started in, in sort of an, you know, interesting way, right? I mean, I grew up with a dad who was a dealer, um, hmm. My dad was a small town dealer. So, you know, he had three small town stores in central Illinois. 
he he had me late in life, guys. I mean, he was 44. I thought my name was Oops. My older brothers called me Oops <laughs> for like the first six years of my life, right? And and my dad said, go to college, don't go in the car business. And and I go off to college, run out of money early, like all college kids. And I sneak behind his back because I remembered the name of a friend he used to say he would go on Chevrolet trips with. And he had a dealership in downtown Chicago. So I go knock on his door and I get Mr. Meltzer to give me a job. I was going to wash cars, I thought. And he goes, no, no, I'll teach you how to sell cars, but don't tell your dad. You're really? Me, right? And, and you were in college. This is when you were in college. This was in college it's at Loyola University in downtown oh, Chicago. Wow. And so I stay in the car business part time while I'm going to college and I go look at all the normal jobs, right? That we all thought we were supposed to go look at. And they all paid less than I made selling cars part-time my senior year of college. Mm. And so I go into the car business and I went to work for a great dealer, Bob Rorman, who was starting to open stores in the Chicago marketplace. And after about six years, I got the opportunity to move to the training and development side. Um, and that company, I got really lucky, got bought by a large company who you and they have been the kings of F&I all through the 80s and 90s. And it was the old Pat Ryan and Associates, and yeah. which became Resource. Right. Mm -hmm. So when, so I'm curious, when did your dad find out you were selling cars? Yeah. What was his reaction when you graduated um, and you went junior, right into the car dealer? Junior year, um, he drove to the dorm. And he was waiting for me to get there, and I didn't know it. And he saw me getting out of a demo. Uh, <laughs> and he clearly knew what a demo was. So Yeah, he was not really pleased with me. Or, <laughs> what are you doing? Where's that car from? Why do you have a demo? And I go, I can explain. How long have you been doing it? Yeah, so it was, it was challenging for sure. So, and that, so and he didn't want you to work for him right away? So I had three older brothers, none of them in the business. And you got to remember, hmm. when I went to college, my dad was 63 years old. And hmm. my dad is looking at Florida. Um, he's looking at, you know, having a more relaxed life than trying to keep three stores in towns of 20,000 people successful, right? So it just was, it was time that I would ruin them, not make them successful <laughs> as a young guy. Right. Um, but I fell so, in love with the idea that I could be in the business, but be on the helping side of the business, right? So I, I found the best of both worlds. And I'm always curious, what did you actually study in college? Oh, so it, don't <laughs> laugh, right? So I got, an, <laughs> I got an economics degree because it was the easiest business degree to get. And I got a minor in Irish history because... One of my professors <laughs> taught me as a bartender, um, I was a bartender underage. And he said, so David, why aren't you taking Irish history classes? And I said, um, I don't know. He says, well, serve me a Guinness that I don't think I'll be paying for anymore. And then we'll <laughs> talk about getting you signed up for classes because we go to Ireland every semester. If you, if you get a minor or a major in Irish history. And I went, go to Ireland? And, and it's part of my college credits. Okay. Wow. I'm, I'm in, right. So, wow. Well, we are learning all sorts right. of things. I'm, su I'm sure There's that a, degree has come back to help you in some way. The Irish history. The Irish history degree. Yeah. Yes. 
the Irish history degree um, became a passion. <laughs> I, I still read Irish history novels regularly. My wife and I are going to Ireland this summer for two weeks uh, for our 35th wedding anniversary. So, yeah, it's it's still a joy. We could have used that maybe for the short we, thing. We still may. We I still may. may. I may, you may think of something on the fly. All right. While he thinks of something on the fly, Dave, let's go into you know your passion and what kept you in the training world. Because your career, you were in every area of the dealership, right? From sales to service, you yep. you were exposed to all of it. So what kept you at training, and why do you think that's so important for a dealer's success? I, I think what, what really captured my heart was it was a place where I could do two things I was passionate about. One, I wanted to help a dealer make more money and have a more effective business. And number two, I wanted to see that that success impacted the life of somebody in the dealership. Hmm. So it, it provided me energy to watch a salesperson or a manager's career get better and make more money. And it provided me energy to have a dealer go, all right, you're making a difference. Keep it up, keep doing it. Mm. So when you look at the training industry and, you know, we were looking at, um, you know, the fact that, you know, it's kind of interesting. I think we were reading in our research that you started uh, quantum in uh, September of 2020. Is that correct? Yes. Um, I was, I owned another training company at that time and mm -hmm. we were concentrated on phone skills and phone technology in dealerships. Um, and so I was listening to the calls that salespeople and service advisors were getting. And what occurred to me is that all of our typical, here's the 10 steps to a sale. Here's how we sell cars. Here's how we service them was getting shuffled right? Digital retailing was emerging as, okay, I really should get more involved. Dealers were super flexible with how they were selling and servicing. And what happened was I had the idea that said, if we would work on skills and we would help people get more skilled, instead of trying to get them to memorize steps and scripts, which by the way, I was, I was part of the problem for a lot of years, right? Because I was one of the people that brought steps and scripts to people. Yeah. And I said, if we make a shift, they will be more successful. And we got a pilot dealership because they believed like I believed. And we were able to create results. And it, it just emerged that the time was right to provide training that was less event-based and more continuum-based. Hmm, interesting. And maybe elaborate for us the difference between event-based and continuum-based, you know, and, and how you define it and 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 why that makes a difference. So in in my 10 years, I, I was directly helping FI for just a little over a decade, right? About 12 years. And what I observed when I was doing that was we did an event. They came to a one or a two week FNI school. And then somebody right in the field picked up the learning from there uh, and was always there to work with them. Okay. But when you think about how we train salespeople, service advisors, and even some of the leadership development, right. it wasn't like that, right? 
It was, hi, come for two days. Hi, come for three days. And then go back to the dealership. And we're going to believe that you're going to remember everything we did. Mm. And it'll be okay. And so I worked hard over the years to try and find a way to replicate that. In our phone skills business, we had virtual coaches, right? So we were doing an event and then virtual coaches were helping. And really quantum was just the next evolution of how can we provide a learner in a dealership, a continuum? Because I don't know about you guys, but I I don't find managers and dealerships to be lazy. They're just incredibly busy. Yes. And I wanted to find new and more effective ways to support that 27-year-old who's making a career change, wants to be great at selling cars and create good life for him, uh, maybe a girlfriend, maybe a baby, right? I I wanted to help them. And I think it took more than an event. You know, that's a great description. And I don't think I've ever heard that in terms of thinking about leaders in dealerships as, you know, and relating the fact that they, how hardworking they are. Mm -hmm. And I think you're spot on. I mean, I think people that work in retail automotive are, I don't know of an industry that really works harder. Um, You know, six days a week, 12 hours a day is sort of the norm um, of that industry, of that part of the business. And it is an immense burden on the people. But you're right. The training, the focus on training can appear as it's a lazy aspect of the business. The reality is it's just a, it's just prioritizing in real time when you have a customer sitting in front of you. How do you how do you coach your team when you're asked to produce on a pay plan and you have your customers sitting right in front of you wanting something? Right. And, mm-hmm. and and so what you're saying is this continuous learning, this always on, if you will, platform, um, if I could take a liberty and call it that, yep. um, it enables the everyone to learn on their time when it's convenient. Is, is that one of the benefits? Yes. Now, take exactly where you left off and add, and what if that platform could be fed data? from the CRM, the DMS. What if it knew that you were a service advisor, you had written a hundred ROs in the last six days, um, the 70 of the multi-point inspection reports said customers needed new tires. And what if you'd only sold two sets of tires? So now what if the platform knew that And what we were getting you to help your skills was content that said, hey, do you know what you do in a situation where a customer said, well, I'll just go to discount tire if I need tires? Hmm. What if we knew how to help you get better at what you needed and the learning was also personalized? What if it was fun? What if all of that was built in a way that was play? And you could play the game of getting better at your job. Wow. So, Dave, how do you see, um, you know, that playing out in the way people learn? You know, have you traditionally you mentioned sitting in a classroom, absorbing information and then hoping for the best. Right. The event based, the continuous based. So in this platform, the way you've, you know, evolved the way training is delivered. 
How do you see that being received from from individuals? Do you see that the information being retained higher? Do you see better yeah. performance? What's what's the result of that difference? So, so what we did is we didn't eliminate an event. We didn't say, oh, no humans here, just go to a technology and it'll be okay. We believe kind of like you guys do, right? Which is there's real power in human to human connection to get a skill process started. What we did is employ technology as part of the continuum to keep them learning. And what we found is that people really embraced it. People found it fun. We promised them privacy. We said, hey, we're not going to tell your boss how many minutes, every single test score and achievement level and award, right? We're going to make this about you. We kept humans called community managers on the back end. So Elliot could take a picture of an email from a customer and say, I'm sending this over because this person's making me crazy. I could use some help on what should I say to this person? And there would be a familiar person on the other end called your community manager who said, Elliot, I got you. So it looks like you have a customer that's really like this. Try this idea. Have you thought about sending them something like this or this? So what we did is blend it. And let me go back to your detail of your question, which was results, right? And so I had a couple of hallmarks. I said, we have to be able to track data. So we start every client with baseline data. We, we want to know stuff about the team. And every single month, we sit down for an ROI conversation. Wow. Because if I'm not moving numbers, I should get fired. I've I've lived with dealers long enough to know that's yeah. their that's their expectation and they deserve it. So we concentrate constantly on what are we going to work on? What do we have to improve? And I'm happy to tell you. So, I mean, a public dealer group that's our client, right? We've tracked now for 19 straight months and we've seen consistent improvement in their service team and effective labor rate improvements combined with total service growth, combined with CSI per store, right? We have sales departments that have seen consistent 14-month improvements, not big spikes, right? Nice J-curves of consistency because people are always in our tech and our community playing to get better. So yeah. we watch phone appointment rates, we watch show up rates, we watch email connection rates, we take DMS data and CRM data that the dealer feeds us, we throw it into a data lake, and we continue to calibrate, personalizing, how do I make Dave better at his work? Hmm. Hmm. So I guess when, you know, when I think about that, which it sounds amazing, I mean, who wouldn't want to leverage all the data they have? They're all their own data to help their team be better and have right? a, and have an a personal coach, way. essentially. But I guess my, you know, what I think about is, you know, how has this reson? How do you find it resonates with, you know, different generations? Right. I think meaning, I I could buy into the gamers loving this. Right. Mm -hmm. I could buy into that. How, mm -hmm. But how do you find it? It, it resonates throughout all the spectrum of the generations that work in a dealership, which is diverse uh, from that perspective. Yeah. How, how are you finding that engagement level across that span? So 
what the greatest challenge was for us was to create content that would appeal across the generations. For example, we produce a quantity of animated content. The gamer, the younger generations in our workplace connect with it really well. Um, we produce some video-based content. We produce audio-based content. We produce just static images of emails. They can listen to phone calls and work through scenarios how to handle calls better. So we play across this omni-channel of content and where we find some people who go, okay, this, this is just hard for me. Service advisors is the hardest place. Let's be honest right there. Working eight, nine hour, really difficult shifts, dealing with difficult problems. So where we find that inside the technology, some content doesn't connect, we just amplify our getting community management, human to human coaching done. We do it through Zoom. We do it through phone calls. So we just continue to try and wrap an omni-channel support mechanism around it, Elliot, to yeah. make sure we don't miss people. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense in using using your own data as a feedback loop for your content. Right. Uh, Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about you know the skill sets that you're seeing and the and the types of training uh, programs that are resonating. <laughs> You know, we talk a lot about hard skills versus soft skills. You kind of have to have a balance of both, especially in the dealer world. Yep. Where do you see that kind of evolving? Do you see a greater emphasis being placed on, you know, things like emotional intelligence, um, especially kind of for those uh, aspiring leaders? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, look, we, you know, we're very fortunate at JMA that we, um, we our company invests in us as right. leaders, and um, mm -hmm. and a lot of what we're getting invested in, or or where we're we're investing is in softer skills, emotional intelligence, empathy, learn, you know, and you know, we, you know, we were prepping, and is is that translating over to the dealership world too, or is it still all about the steps to the sale and? Um, you know, learning how a to appra appraise a vehicle and do a proper, you know, service write-up. I, I want to tell you, I still think, I think, I think there's greater adoption and openness. Um, I, I always tell our team that we have to be patient because we're still three years ahead of greater and greater acceptance of it. I mm. think what dealers are realizing is that the sales team and the advisor team and even the leaders are being really clear about the difficulty in a more virtual environment. Um, how do I build trust? Right. How do I build credibility? And how do I win the wallet and mind share of my customer without doing some of those things? You, based on what you said, you guys will kind of chuckle at this story, right? <laughs> so I was actually in a Toyota store in South Florida during our early pilot stage. And one of the things we talk about is we're going to help your salespeople become incredible advocates to help customers complete the journey they want to complete to buy a vehicle. And a really great general sales manager, good friend, pulled me aside and he goes, hey, Dave, man, You've been out of the showroom too long. You can't use that word advocate. See, we use it kind of like a cuss word. 
if they're being an advocate for the customer, it's not good. So you need to <laughs> wow. take, take that out of your training, take it out of your marketing. And I kind of smiled at him and I said, you know, it may take me a while, but I'm not taking it out because we have to not be afraid that our customers will have such a positive experience. We, we teach them about how to work with different personality styles, right? Um, we teach them that if they can adapt in a telephone, email, text environment to different personality styles, they will create that relationship. Talk about soft skill words, right? Sure. We're not talking about just go out and do rapport and questions. Let's, no, let's build a relationship where I'm the advocate that's going to help you complete your journey. Yeah. And so far, yeah. well adopted. That's great. That is great. Are you seeing uh, more and more dealers become aware of the importance of this stuff? Because I think you could say, you know, in the past, dealers would look at training as maybe the first thing they could cut yes. or cut back on yep. right? or you yeah, know, usually save. It was looked at as a luxury. A luxury. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We don't have time necessarily for all that. Is that mindset shifting, do you think, or do we do we still have work to do in showing how important this is? I think we have work to do. I think voices like yours have been really helpful because you guys you guys bring a, a loud ability to speak through the megaphone. But when you guys talk about what we're all going through with people shortages and talent shortages and how we have to have a different mindset about, look, there's we, we, we had a population problem that's not going to get fixed easy. It was birth rates. Now it's death rates and retirement rates. And therefore, replacing people the way we, we shouldn't have done but could do in the past is not one of a dealer's options today. Today, we're 25 million people short jobs to yeah. open people to open positions in America. So, would you, Dave, would you say that that a dealer should look at their uh, employee satisfaction and and their turnover just as important as they do things like CSI or traditional metrics? Like, talk to us about the correlation between the employee satisfaction and the customer's satisfaction. So there's a company that we acquired last year called ESI Trends now called yeah. ESIQ. And because of the data, they do the NADA workforce study every year. We That's also right. did all, about 125,000 employee net promoter score surveys in dealerships last year. Uh, so man, ESI, I just, sorry to interrupt, but that's, yeah. it is amazing when you do an ESI study at a dealership and show it to the dealer. Uh, and I've, I've had the, right? I've had the luxury of experiencing that. I've never seen more. It's an, it's very interesting to see how they react because yeah. it can be, it's either way. It's very emotional. <laughs> <laughs> one way or another it's either a, this is not real or oh my gosh i cannot believe this but yeah sorry to interrupt but yeah go ahead no it's it, you're exactly right and that emotional thing elliot is why you often see dealers not really want to go down the path because they feel there could be frustration waiting um but back to it when when you look at the data the data proves a couple of things right 
Number one, there's a direct correlation between employee retention. Please remember the number 36 months. There's a direct correlation of getting employees past the 36-month retention period and customer satisfaction and customer retention percentages. Hmm. There's also a direct relationship between gross profit per employee in the dealership and retention levels getting past the three-year point. So hmm. to your question, I encourage dealers, as you should have a card in your pocket that says, here's everybody that's been here more than 24 months, but hasn't made it to 36. And I need to find them every time I'm out in the dealership. And I need wow. to go hug them. <laughs> I, need, <laughs> I need to say they're important. I need to listen to them. Because when I start to get past the 36 month point, gross profit per employee goes up. My customers know that we don't have new people practicing on them and they stay longer. Wow. Is that the magic of the 36 months? Is Yes. That's the number. Wow. Very interesting. Yep. So, so Dave, what are some things that you would suggest, you know, in addition to hugging them on the showroom floor or <laughs> wherever they may be, what are some things that you could suggest that dealers can do? Yep. You know, if they're not doing much right now in terms of, focusing on their employee satisfaction. What are some things you suggest that they look at right away? So when you take the last two years of data, we have about 200,000 net promoter score results. In that, one of the questions we ask is, are you thinking about looking for a new job? If you said yes, please tell us the reasons why you're thinking about leaving your dealership. When huh. you take all of that data and you go, what are the top five reasons that they say they're thinking about leaving? There's the secret decoder about what dealers should be thinking about. Number one, communication. Well, general managers and dealers say all the time, look, I walk around, I say hello to everybody. I, I talk to people and I go, yeah, the generation's changed. There's this thing called Teams. There's this thing called Slack. There's other ways they want communication and they want it to be transparent. They want to know stuff. And it's going to make you weird out a little, but you're going to have to think about communication different. Number two, they say career path. Nobody talks to me about where my future's going. They just want me to stay in this job, be quiet and do it. And they're looking for what happens to me in automotive? How do I progress? What does it look like? Are there rewards? Is there something better than just today this? Um, number three, there they're looking for what dealers, I always call it touching the third rail, which is dangerous, right? They're <laughs> looking for things around flexible life. Hey, look, we have to find ways in automotive to allow people some flexibility that technology can provide for their schedule. Um, we have to find some ways to compensate different. And they are they're more upfront about give me flexibility than just give me time off. So those are always in the top three. Uh, number four is always in top five. Um, my leader is not a great leader. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not seeing from them the things that make me want to go. I'm staying here forever. 
Right. So if dealers think about leadership, flexibility, if they think about career planning and explanations of the future in the business, and they think about, okay, what does it look like for me to communicate differently? Um, they can make progress on retention. I noticed you didn't say pay plans. Yeah. In those top five. Suspiciously omitted from the from the top there. They included in flexibility. They would they would trade money if you would let them have different schedules. Right. Um, I, automotive and any sales organization is always going to need incentive-based compensation, perform sure. for results, right? But what you see now is there are dealer groups that are making really good efforts at experimenting with, if you sell X number a month, or if you average this for 90 days running, here's what your schedule looks like. We can use the CRM from our phones now. We can make calls to customers from the CRM app on our phone. There's lots of ways that if I sell 20 cars a month, why can't I go to the gym in the morning and not come in till 10? Right. Right. So they, they think of comp as overall, give me flexibility in the way they approach things. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it too, because I mean, for all the, you know, general managers, dealers out there that, um, you know, are very bottom line focused, adding more money is not always what I'm hearing is, you yeah. know, adding more money doesn't have to be the way to keep people and motivate them. Uh, there's a lot of other levers you can try uh, to pull. Yeah. And, yes. uh, so Dave, before we get to um, everyone's favorite segment, a sure thing. Let's give us a little bit of the future here, if you can. Where, what do you see on the horizon for learning? What are some things maybe you guys are working on or what could dealers kind of expect in the years to come when it, when you think about learning and training and the evolution of that? I I think first and foremost, it's not going to exclude humans in the performance development and support and coaching of people in automotive. It's not going to just eliminate that. Um, but I do believe it's going to need to incorporate more and more personalization to how we approach their learning. This is a, we're, we're going to have generations of people in the dealership now that went to school like our kids, right? And, you know, they want to learn in shorter components. So we're going to have to personalize and get the right content to the right people and then still wrap experienced humans around to be there for the things we need. We we just started with our first OEM relationship where the current LMS system will be completely displaced by April 1st of next year for our platform because they get it that people in the dealership don't really like the way OEM learning is done. Right. So I think that as that as that sort of continues to move as a thought process in the OEM community, uh, I think we're going to see more of it. And automotive people deserve it. There's 374,000 just in the showrooms of dealerships around America. Wow. And I think we can do better for them. All right. Well, I guess the chat bots are not coming for the trainer's jobs just yet. Just yet. Just Maybe yet. some of the content, right, Dave? I mean, AI might have a, a role in the, creation of the content, but the delivery is still going to require or 
involve a human in some way? There's there's really cool AI things, just like you guys see right now. We're running an experiment of running calls through chat GPT and asking it to give us probability of an appointment show up ratio. Uh Right. Um, So I think there's going to be evolutionary things around learning. Um, But if you've ever looked at a training avatar, they don't have the shine on my bald head. They they don't. (laughs) Right. They, They don't have all the things we have that human connection still looks for. Um, yep. So I'm I'm happy for that. I think for the future, I would like to see both you and me in a uh, with perfect hair. That would yeah, be wouldn't that be nice? That'd be nice. It's been a while. One I'd day. be glad wow. to have hair. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, it's time for a sure thing. Elliot right. here has has prepared some opinions, some hot takes, if you will, and uh, we're going to ask you to you know put it to the test. Yeah, what do you I'm, think? A little over my skis here in the sense that um, okay. um, I am by no means a training education expert. Right. Um, Thank but, you uh, for acknowledging that. Yes. Being vulnerable. <laughs> Having said that, I am going to take an opinion here. Um, and so we've heard, and I'm sure as an educator, trainer, you know, in the uh, CEO of a training company, you know, um, you've heard the concept of the 70-20-10 model as it relates to learning. Um, and specifically, I'll, for anyone that doesn't know the model, I'll, I'll say that it holds that individuals obtain 70% of their knowledge from job-related experiences, 20% from interactions with others, and 10% from formal educational events. It's funny we use that word events. Right. Um, mm-hmm. um, and there's an associate we have here, Chris Costello, who has also shared his philosophy on um, learning, and he has the... Um, Learn one, do one, teach one philosophy. Yes. You've heard that. I have. I right? certainly have. Another interesting philosophy. But here's my opinion. Here we go. Here it I comes. believe. I believe. That these rule of thumb models are not helpful. And I'll tell you why. I believe that humans are very different from one another. And these rule of thumbs and how people learn Um are not always true. I think there are some people who can learn effectively in an event-based class. Um, And I think that there are some who can only learn effectively by seeing someone else do it. And so I think these models tend to force people into buckets that overall does not relate to personalization. So that's my sure thing. These models of learning are not helpful for uh, the masses and should not be used. Sure thing or not a sure thing. I think you're right on target. I think it's a sure thing. <laughs> so in other words, it's a sure thing, Dave. It is. I, yeah. I sort of get pleasure when Elliot is wrong. So as you can see, the, so it's uh it's delight. It's a one to one for one, which is which is great. Yeah. A great start. No you're, no, you're right on. Cool. Well, thank well you. Well done, Elliot. Well yeah. done. Well, someone yeah. once told me that um uh, uh all models are wrong, some are useful. Okay. And I think that's it. Was I that think, another one? I think that's Chris Costello. Quote. That's a famous quote. It's not Chris <laughs> it's Costello. Not Costello. Okay. Um, yeah. But um, okay. So um, we're all big movie fans here around the podcast. And, uh, you know, when we think of training and movies, you know, we, we kind of like to, you know, we had a little fun. And Mark actually came up with this one, which I thought was really good. But, you know, 
in a lot of training, uh, a lot of movies, you see training montages. And so we were uh, thinking back to all the great training montages. There's some amazing ones. Really, there are. Yes. Uh, we have some here, you know, um, obviously, and you know, we're going to homage back to the great era of training montages, which was the 80s. The 80s. Definitely. Yeah. Um, oh, you boy. had... Uh, you had Mr. Miyagi with the famous wax on, wax off training montage. You know, that's right. Yep. Um, this was a little uh, deeper one, but a deeper cut. But the dirty dancing training montage, that was a fabulous one, right? They're yeah. in the woods. Um, nobody nobody yeah. puts baby in the corner. No one. Nobody no one puts, puts baby, baby in the corner. And, and she learned to do the, what was it? She the learned. Or the, yeah. Yeah. The good, good memory, yeah. Dave. The, yeah. um. Um, and then, of course, you know, Luke Skywalker, Master Yoda and his training session. There's been a lot. But to me, there really is only one, the best training montage of all time. And it absolutely has to be two grown men on a beach, sweaty, hugging in tight short shorts. <laughs> yes, you know what I'm talking about. It's Rocky Four. It's the, actually Rocky Three. Is it Rocky? Rocky Three. three. Is when they're training and they're running on the beach and they have that awkward hug. Oh, in you the know, ocean. there's a flashback Rocky, in Rocky Four. Rocky Four is the, the flashback. flashback. So, okay, Rocky Three, mm -hmm. Rocky Four is the best training montage scene of all time. Sure thing or not a sure thing. So, I was afraid you were going to go Glen Gary, Glen Ross. Oh, always be closing. Always be closing. Look at that. That's a great like, one, okay. Dave. Where's he headed? And I'm gonna have to disagree and go with Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. That's we didn't a great think of one. That. We didn't even think of that. Well done. Well Very done. Very well Dave. done. Um, I thought you were being politically correct because of Baldwin's cussing in it. So I was like, okay, then maybe that's why. Well, he's that's a, <laughs> that is one of the best uh cameo scenes of an actor of all time. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's uh, just a great movie. Too. Just a great movie overall. Yep. All right. Call. Well done, Dave. Well done. All right, here we go. Um and Last you know, one. I did have a we we heard we heard you're a bit of a grill master out there. Um yeah, yeah, that's what we heard. We that's, did some research. That's Dave. word on the street, Dave. You know, yeah. So it became a hobby because of dealers in Texas and Oklahoma, um, <laughs> you know, taking me places, and and then one smoker led to another, to now there's there may be two working ones. And one non-working one at my house. Yeah. So I'm going to commit barbecue heresy over here. And uh, <laughs> and I'm going to say that I believe out of all the types of grills out there available, and you got green eggs, you got all sorts of stuff these mm -hmm. days, right? I am going to commit heresy and say my favorite and the best tasting food coming off of a grill is good old-fashioned propane. Nothing like that propane taste. What a on hot the grill. <laughs> sure thing or not a sure thing. Propane is the best, Dave. Are you going to agree with that? Um, is there is there a wood box with mesquite in the propane area that's smoking at the same time? No, no. I'm talking about your Home Depot no. Weber grill. You know, you're hooking up the tank. You're checking the line, making sure it's coming through. Your you starters. Me to your show, and I'm going to end up saying no to two things. Yes. No <laughs> This was a softball. So what is the best? What is, what the, is best, the best, Dave, in your um, humble grill master opinion? So um, 
most people who smoke would tell you offset, um, which is smoker chamber offset from the actual grilling chamber. So you're actually just cooking with the heat that came from the offset. Mm. Um, I this sounds have very offset. complicated. Um, I have propane for emergencies, and <laughs> I have. Wood- and then that I was a shot. At, that was a shot at me. The protein for emergencies only with the hand, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, Elliot, you finished one for three. Not bad. Not bad yep. showing. So Dave, we got the offset for the all you offset. grill masters. It's a wood. Any type of wood that Google you that. prefer. Yeah. So it depends on the food you're making, right? So Ooh. certain foods, different ones. I like fruit woods with chicken. Um, I like mesquite when I'm in doing steaks, hickory with brisket. It, it just depends on the flavor of your palate and what you really like. Um, but I, I keep about eight different woods here at the house, not knowing. Um, Mrs. O'Brien's kind of in charge of the flavor pool at times. So mm. I, I'm always cautious about that. Good teamwork. Dave, like I'm it. hoping you create a YouTube channel on all this grill talk because <laughs> I have a lot to learn. And you have shown us a lot for dealers to learn about training and how they can continue to keep their teams engaged, which will, of course, translate to success with customers. Yeah, a lot of great practical advice. Uh, By all means, please check out Dave's company um, doing great things. We know they're up to great stuff. Um, Quantum 5 is the company name. Um, Thank you, Dave, for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time. Well, thank you guys, man. Have have a great day. Uh, Enjoy the Florida sunshine. Starting to get pretty warm by you guys. We will. Thank you so much, Dave. All right. Take care. Thanks.